Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Daniel Buck, a policy and editorial associate at the Fordham Institute, joins us to discuss the behavioral chaos in American schools. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses a new study that finds pandemic-era public school enrollment declines look likely to persist. All that on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Yes, who among us has not gazed at the Capitol building and been inspired by what transpires inside it? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome back our special guest for this week, Daniel Buck. Dan, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me back on. You know, Dan is now a policy and editorial associate here at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Dan, we are so excited you've moved from fellow to staffer, and it's been great having you here. I think it's been, what, a couple of weeks at this point. End of August, we'll make it two months. Just got to meet everybody in the office last week, flew into the D.C. area for the first time. So I've never seen Lincoln Memorial or any of those things, and I got to go around and see them all while I was in, in town. Whoa, whoa, I didn't realize that. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? And look, listen to me. Boy, time flies and we're having fun. I can't believe it's already been a couple months. Well, it's great to have you here, Dan. Also joining us, as always, you just heard his voice, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. I uh, I have seen the Lincoln Memorial many times at this point, I have to say. I got a little buzz the first time I walked by it. But if you actually live here, it's amazing. You can walk right past the White House and... Um, not necessarily notice. But anyway, it's really exciting for Dan. Don't get jaded, David. Come on. I'm not jaded, Mike. I'm just, I'm normal. I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm on a jog and I, you know, I'm tired. And, uh, you know, it just so happens to be a Capitol building. Well, we are here to do the podcast thing with Dan. Dan, you know, before coming on staff at Fordham was a teacher. Yes, I feel a little guilty about bringing Dan out of the classroom. But we're going to talk about his experience, particularly with school discipline. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, Dan, well, you've got a great piece in National Review right now about school discipline and the fact that it seems to be going over a cliff. Let's start by some of your personal experiences. You recounted what it was like in your school, which, let's be clear, was a private Christian school. So this is this is not bashing the traditional public schools here. This is a private Christian school. What did you experience? Yeah, this is a private Christian school that modeled itself on the no excuse charter schools. And in the years prior to me working there, had kind of dismantled a lot of their behavior structures. And what was once one of the premier urban schools in my city was utter pandemonium. My classroom was more orderly than the average classroom in that building. According to my administration, they called it a Dr. Jekyll and Hyde affair, where kids would go elsewhere and would act a fool and then come to my classroom and sit and work and get something done. But I mean, the kinds of things I saw, a student ran into my room and started insulting another student's, one of my own student's deceased fathers, and I had to hold her back from committing assaults. The hallways smelled like marijuana. I broke up fights. There was constant, you know, kids running down the hallway, cussing, play fighting, not going to class. Attendance policies were kind of a joke. 
class would start. And then for the next 10 minutes, kids would continue to trickle in and there was no real start to the day. And as you would expect, it made teaching and learning very difficult. Again, it's interesting that this is in a private school. So you say a, a sort of a no excuses private school a few years ago. And then I assume that, you know, when there was this big push for discipline reform in public schools, charter schools that your private school also got on board? Was it in part because of concerns about unfair, what was considered unfair discipline to racial minorities, to African-American kids in particular? Was that, that was some of the motivation? People felt like, well, we shouldn't be, uh, we're, we're suspending or expelling too many black students? I think that's exactly it. In another piece for national affairs, I track it. It's kind of the the educational analog to you know, defund or abolish the police movements. And a lot of the no excuse charter schools in New York, such as Uncommon or KIPP, got rid of a lot of their no excuse standards, their exacting behavioral expectations, because it was promoting, you know, submissiveness on the part of students, or it was propping up a unfair, unrealistic meritocracy that's not real. And a lot of these schools succumbed to public pressure. And then the other schools like mine around the country that kind of followed their lead did just that and got rid of uniform expectations. So my school used to have, you know, ties and suit jackets, and then that kind of turned to just sweaters and khakis and whatever shoes they wanted. Uh, Silence in the hallways was no longer an expectations. All of these kinds of basic rules and expectations for order were no more. Yeah. And you know, we we hear these stories and you report on it in your piece about now, you know, discipline just being out of control. Of course, you also say that, you know, could have been the pandemic had a big impact. Kids were out of school for a long time and they just, you know, maybe got out of practice of doing school and uh, being able to behave probably on screens way too much, maybe not sleeping enough. I mean, all the, the broader issues that we have going on. And yet uh, my sense is that a lot of educators are really feeling like it's gone too far and that there is starting to be a backlash to some of these reforms. We did see, for example, the Biden administration came out with a dear colleague letter that was much anticipated. Many of us were worried they were going to go back to an Obama era policy from 2014, uh, where they would explicitly say from the Office for Civil Rights, you know, we're going to be watching if you have uh, discipline, uh, if your discipline rates are different by race, uh, we're going to assume that you're violating civil rights. And in fact, they instead, it was a very mild letter where they just encouraged school districts to kind of look at their own data and also expressed a lot of empathy with educators about how hard some of these issues are today and student mental health, et cetera. So, you know, maybe a little bit of a backing away. So I, I guess long way of saying, do you have any sense that in your school or some of these charter schools you think about, they're rethinking and they're saying, okay, maybe we we went too far, that we let the pendulum swing too far in the direction of letting anything go? There is some pushback that I'm starting to see. A few teachers unions have threatened to go on strike over issues like this. I think it was in Akron, Ohio, where the administration wanted to change um, the definition of assault from contact to injury. So it didn't qualify as an assault unless somebody was injured. If a student hit another student, that didn't count as long as they didn't break a bone or something like that. And the union was threatened to go on strike for it. And I'm pretty sure 
the language was maintained and kind of the, the stricter framing. And then just this morning, I was reading about a few districts in Florida that were running audits on their you know, schools and systems and found some concerning things where there just, there weren't really behavior codes anymore, or there, there wasn't a person whose responsibility at the district was to manage these kinds of things. Uh, and I'm in contact, I'm in conversation with a think tank in Wisconsin that are sending out sample models of what school board policy should look like for schools that are trying to clamp down and get this uh, school chaos under control. And look, you know, the answer is not, as you say, necessarily to go back to some of these old policies either, right? I mean, it was never seemed like a great idea to just suspend kids for a week and have them sit at home all by themselves or, you know, out on the streets. And yet, I don't know, David, I mean, this is something we talked about a long time, right? We're just not sure what to do with kids who are chronically misbehaving so that their peers can learn. Like, what, what do you do with those kids if you don't just put them out? Yeah, I'm struck by the continued absence of, um, I'll say, call them alternative consequences in our public discourse. We've been fulminating against suspensions. There has been a backlash, I would argue, from conservatives saying essentially consequences are important. And it seems like every both sides to me are missing the point, which is we need consequences other than suspensions, right? Suspensions are not it's not a synonym for consequences. Uh, it's just this insane sort of, I, I really I really find myself deeply annoyed by almost all sides of the debate. I mean, I think it's crazy. Nobody basically who has had a child, in my experience, thinks that you can get away with no consequences, right? Or, or views, you know, punishment as sort of inherently dehumanizing, right? Like that's, I, I punish my kids all the time, right? And I love them to death. Um, it's part of teaching them to act appropriately and 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 setting boundaries. But having said that, I don't, you know, I don't push them out of the house and tell them to walk around DC for a week, right? That's that's not, you know, that's not good parenting, obviously, and it's it's pr it's pretty unsatisfactory, right? And it just it frustrates me that there doesn't seem to be more discussion of, you know, where this should go, right? Mm -hmm. I I get it. I have zero desire to, to defend the notion that we should equalize suspension rates across races. It's not it's not realistic in the short term. I uh, have zero desire to defend the notion that we should implement restorative justice or, or, or PBIS as sort of these standalone measures instead of suspensions. Right. In, you know, at some massive scale, I, I don't think that's realistic. I don't think it's going to work out well in practice. But uh, I, I don't know. Like, why can't we have a little bit more? money or funding or sorry, those are the same thing. But why can't we have put a little more effort into alternatives, right? Like whatever happened to detention? I mean, it's like it's in the movies, it's always detention, but I haven't heard the word detention in like a decade. And I, my, my guess is it's because it's a huge pain in the butt, right? Like who actually wants to stay after school for an hour and a half and hang out with with the knuckleheads that you didn't want in your classroom in the first place? Nobody wants to do that. But, but it no, might you're be right. better. We should not, instead of less school, we need to make them do more school. Well, I mean, yeah, right? Isn't that sort of intuitive, right? Like, I, I mean, I think Dan makes a good point, you know, in, in, in the column, right, where he says basically, you know, sending them to the, to the lounge with a bag of chips sort of incentivizes misbehavior, right? Okay, so let's actually disincentivize it. Like, let's say you can't leave school until 5 p.m. and you say and you clean, the, you, you clean the cafeteria or whatever, right? I mean, there has to be, it just, there's a level of common sense that's associated with this. And I, my guess is that it's, it's hard to execute in practice, but 
We should at least be talking about it. Well, and, and look, when some people have talked about it, there's been an uproar. I mean, there's an article recently that upset that some districts are saying, okay, we're going to take kids who misbehave and have in-school suspensions, and they can tune into their classes remotely from down the hall. Now, uh, you know, I'm sure the details matter there, but that doesn't sound unreasonable. They're in school, they're safe, they're kind of being able to learn. Maybe, maybe it's the best case scenario. Oh no, this is terrible. You're, you know, it's and and maybe illegal according to some people that uh, that you're going that way. Huge uproar in, in Houston right now, at least according to the New York Times, uh, that they might turn some libraries into some discipline centers, and people are very upset about that. I, I mean, again. We, it's like a lack of seriousness. I mean, we need we need to have be honest that there's no great option. So what is the least worst option? Yes, there's a utopianism that runs through this that doesn't survive contact with reality. And that's why it, it you know, there's inevitably pushback when whenever we try, ask teachers and schools to do the impossible. And I don't know how to get past this sort of um, utopianism. It's, it's kind of like saying every kid Every kid is going to read on grade level, right? We're going to we're going to end suspensions. We're going to you know we're going to keep every kid in class. We're not going to keep every kid in class. So can we have a real conversation about it, please? So Dan, we've been monopolizing the conversation. You tell <laughs> us. Uh, you know, your school is a private school. I guess you could just they could just expel kids. Uh, that's an option. That's not an option as much for public schools, charter schools. What what would you do? I mean, what what would make it better? Do you think? I don't have as much of an aversion to exclusion of some kind as David does. What is the quintessential punishment for children? It's a timeout. It is removing them from the play. It is sending them to their room during dinner time. You are excluding them kind of from the community for a time. That's a huge punishment. It's biblical if we want to go there, kick people out of the church. I don't remember which letter of Paul that is, but it's one of them. So I don't hate the idea of suspensions. Like you said, I think a lot of schools rely on suspensions because they're easier. Somebody has to watch them if they have an after-school suspension. Somebody has to be in the detention room and just kicking them out of school for the day is easy. That doesn't mean that's necessarily what we need to do, though. And I think a little creativity on what our consequences are would help us a lot. Take them out of gym. Take them out of recess. What are the other things we can do short of expelling them for the minor infractions, especially. And I think we all, well, not everyone agrees. That's why I had to write this gosh darn piece. We need consequences of some kind. And I was in my video cheering Mike along as he said, sometimes we have to go with the least bad option. I just want to clarify, I, I'm actually okay with exclusion too. I, I, I think the critique the valid version of the, this critique has always been specifically about out-of-school suspensions, and I have some sympathy for that position. All right. We will have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Daniel Buck. Dan Buck, thanks for coming on the show. We'll have to have you back sometime soon. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So we learned earlier that David, you know, has been in D.C. so long, he's he's not even blown away anymore by the sights and sounds of D.C. You know, he just walks by the, the Lincoln Memorial without thinking twice, you know, is not impressed by the White House. You know, is, do you have this experience, too, now, Amber? No, I do not. I still even when I was coming in more often than we were, I still would gawk, you know, at the White House and the Capitol. I don't know. I just. I think that they continue to, you know, inspire all and I don't know, just inspiration. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a geek that way. 
Yes. Who among us has not gazed at the Capitol building and been inspired by what transpires inside it? Right? <laughs> See, this is the problem, David. Maybe Amber and I can remember a time when uh, things weren't quite so dysfunctional. I right. Yeah, I really can't. I got to be honest. <laughs> Uh, sad, sad, sad. All right, Amber. Hey, uh, what you got for us this week on the research front? Um, we have a new report from NBER and Mathematica. We're going to be diving into patterns and in pandemic-driven disenrollment from public schools and whether it's bounced back or not. And I have a just two or three just little mini quiz questions embedded in here because it is interesting, if you ask me. It's a descriptive report, starts off by providing national estimates, specifically that in the first year of COVID, 1.5 million K-12 kids left the public system for alternatives like homeschooling and private schools. Recent national studies also suggest that public enrollment did not recover in 21-22, remained about 3% below pre-pandemic enrollment levels. So now we have a state-level study in Michigan. It's going to dive into how these enrollment patterns changed in this one state between one and two years into the pandemic, how these exit rates compared to pre-COVID exit rates, and whether kids who exited during the pandemic re-enrolled after two years. We've got uh, Michigan students K through 12 from fall 2017 to fall 2021. Oh, but but this is important. So So let's just be clear. It ends at fall 2021. Fall 2021. All right. So we definitely, you know, don't even, this isn't even last school year. So we got to be careful about any conclusions we make, right? Because that was still not the end of the pandemic. Okay. It, it still it still is not, right? But it, yes. All right. Total enrollment had been declining by 1,000 students per grade annually before COVID, totaling more than 10,000 students per year. In fall 2020, total enrollment dropped by 3.2% which was four times the historic trend and represents a single year decline of more than 40,000 students. The fall 2020 enrollment drop was largest in the kindergarten grade, declined by how much you think it declined in kindergarten in fall 2020? My first little question. Oof, tough one. Uh, 15%. David? I'm going to go for 20%. All right, 11.3, so still high. In contrast, enrollment in high schools remain roughly in line with pre-COVID enrollment trends. Even after adjusting for pre-COVID enrollment trends, data followed the same pattern, albeit these numbers were reduced somewhat. Then we move to the second year, fall 2021. Enrollment continues to decline. Uh, in fall 2021, it was about 4% below, 3.6, below the pre-pandemic levels in fall 2019, which corresponds to an additional loss of 0.4 percentage points from that 3.2% decline I just told you about in fall 2020. Kindergarten enrollment partially recovered in 2020 in fall, but still remained substantially below the fall 2019 enrollment. Other grades continued to decline modestly, except for middle school, which saw enrollment drop by an additional 3% in the fall of 2021. Now we move to, move to exit rates. Um, again, small fraction of Michigan kids enroll in the public school system prior to kindergarten. So the declines in kindergarten enrollment primarily reflect reflect those changes in initial enrollment, those kids just not being enrolled at, at the front end. In other grades, however, declines were largely driven by these increased exit rates among students who were previously enrolled. But then they ask, okay, what portion of those kids sub subsequently re-enrolled? All right, overall, 
Of those who exited before fall 2020, how many do you think re-enrolled in the public school system by fall 2021? 75%. I'm going to go with 60. Ah, 55. Yes. <laughs> David wins that one. <laughs> uh, this re-enrollment rate is highest among kindergartners. 62% of those youngins left the public school system, uh, did not enroll. I mean, they did enroll in first grade, but they had re-enrolled by fall 2021. Uh, return rates for elementary and middle grades uh, were slightly lower at 56%. Lowest mm -hmm. were high school kids with only 40% returning. Uh, in contrast, re-enrollment rates in, private, in, in years prior to the pandemic were 24%, lower on average. All right, next, and this is our last big bucket here. They find variation in re-enrollment by sector. So you have higher return rates among those who left for homeschooling compared to those who left for private schools. So approximately what percentage of students who exited for homeschooling by fall 2020 had returned to the public schools by fall 2021? Amber, this is like asking me how much I can bench on Mars. I, I don't know. Uh, it's a guessing gosh. game. I'm going to say 75% for this one. All right. Yeah, I was going to go for 80, 80%. Uh, wow, 50%. Uh, oh. Left for homeschooling, had returned. All right, another guess. How about, I mean, obviously it's lower for private schools. How many of those kids you think might have returned? 25%? I don't know. David, what you got? I'll go with All right, 30%. 20%. 20% uh, those mm -hmm. kids who went to private schools returned. Uh, both of them had the same pattern by grade levels, high returns among the kindergarten kids, low returns among the high school kids. And in terms of student characteristics compared to white students, Black students were more likely re to return. Asian students were less likely to return. Uh, Low-income and special ed students more likely to return. ELL students less likely. The likelihood of returning decreased by grade level compared to kindergartners who exited in fall 2020. Students in grades one through five were 1.4 percentage points less likely to return. Middle school students, four percentage points less likely to return. High school students, 19 percentage points less likely to return. All of that is consistent with fixed effects models. So this is really not about the school environment. And then they close with, okay, if this if this pattern sticks around relative to your point, uh, Mike, we, we really don't know yet. Uh, schools and districts are going to need to deal with budget restrictions, which we've been hearing a lot about. That's it. Yeah. So, right. This story is still being told. I mean, I do feel like, I mean, this, this school year that is just starting now I feel like we should, you know, if there's going to be a return to normal, it should happen by now. The official pandemic emergency is over and we'll see how this sorts out. I mean, all these parents that that reported homeschooling their kids, I was always skeptical of that. You know, I was always thought that was just a reporting thing. Like, you're, are you homeschooling your kid or is your kid just at home right now? Uh, two very different things, right? At least for us wonks. And that a lot of those kids would go end up going back. And it looks like they, that is to some degree happening, but not everybody. I mean, there are, you know, this was a long enough experience, way too long for many kids that it, it makes sense that some new patterns happen, you know, and, and that parents that found a private school for their kid so they could go back to school in the fall of 2020, that a lot of them are sticking with that. I think that's, uh, I think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm just struck again, though, how, the modal parents' experience, though, has not been to, to exit the system, right? Your average parent never left the system in the first place, right? So I don't know. I feel like this, in many ways, it's a bigger event in terms of how it affected the way parents think about school, right? 
and I feel like the implications for for like chronic absenteeism, right, and how parents relate to teachers. To me, that I think that's almost a bigger story than people exiting the system, right? Or am I misunderstanding the numbers? Well, look, it's still it, it doesn't take a ton of kids to leave the system for that still to have a big impact on budget and policy, right, and the experience that kids are having. I mean, you know, and and let's keep in mind, I don't know if they got into this, Amber, but this is on top of the ongoing demographic trend that was already underway, which was the baby bust, right? And so, you know, uh, I know because Nico, my 15 year old, born in 2007, you know, more babies born in 2007 than any other year in American history. And so he's going into a sophomore year of high school. It's so right now it's the sophomores and juniors. That is the the high point of student enrollment and everybody younger than them. The enrollment's declining and it's been declining more or less year over year. So it's just is the case that there's fewer kids in kindergarten right now than there are in high school. And as as this works its way through the system. So that's happening, too. And I just wonder, like, how do you control for that? I mean, it still has the same impact on districts, which is that many of them, if not most, are going to shrink. Uh, and there's no sign of uptick on the baby boom or bust. Uh, immigration might have some, you know, maybe that comes back uh, more than it did during the pandemic. But still, I mean, the trends are down and, and school districts are going to have to close schools. There's no way around it. Right. Well, and also the disproportionate return rates among subgroups of kids. So you've got less Asian students coming back. You've got more Black students coming back. You've got low-income students and special ed students more likely to come back, but not the ELL kids. I mean, you know, you've got all these different sort of, you know, patterns in terms of the demographics. So, I mean, that's changing too, which makes it, you know, makes a difference in how we study, you know, trends across time and, and that sort of thing. Yep. And the high school students, I always wonder, what does it mean to not come back? Does that mean that we had a bunch of kids drop out? And I haven't yet seen, you know, really hard numbers to say what, you know, how many of these kids we just lost and, and they're just lost. They're they're in the labor market and they're disconnected. Mike, I, I don't think we're ever going to know at this point. I mean, honestly, yeah, I've been looking. I mean, I, I've had the same experience you have. I keep waiting for someone to nail it down. And I've seen, you know, some reasonable estimates. But I don't think anyone knows. And, and it makes me wonder, like, really? Like, the ELL uh, data were interesting. And it made me wonder, oh, is was that in the high school level? A lot of la maybe Latino immigrant kids that that left and, and started working, and that's that's it? Yeah, that made me wonder about identification rates, too. But I agree. Um, that one's uh, strange. Other than that, though, right? I mean, it was basically intuitive, right? Like, the kids with the few options were forced to come back. Right. All right, Amber. Uh, good stuff. Maybe we'll come back in a year and, and see. Uh, Have another year of data. Another year of data. There we go. Very exciting for us. All right. Thank you, guys. That is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.